0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Trashy Divorces Season 14. Season 14. My name is Stacy. Hey friends, I'm <laughs> Alicia. It begins. We are so happy you're joining us today. Thanks so much. We have missed your trashy hearts today's episode.
1: We're going to take a little bit of an international mm-hmm. tour this week. Got our passports out. Got our time machine out. To talk about two women who will eventually find
0: their place in the world with a little nod to my girl t swift stacy who are you bringing us this week
1: i have the amazing story of canada's margaret trudeau the wife of one prime minister ex-wife of one prime minister mother of a second and you have
0: holy cats this week we are headed over to 18th century Mm -hmm. england to talk about georgiana spencer cavendish the duchess of devonshire there are some food jokes some sheep jokes too. (laughs) Yes. Hey, before we get into our episode today, Mm. let's pull out this shiny, shiny magic mirror and give some enormously large thanks and praise to the newest people who've joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces for all the fun that happens over there.
1: Oh yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Sheila H., Kelly A., Scott D., Teresa H., Melissa W., Wendy G, Disco D, JB, Rachel H, Robin G, Auburn P, Christine C, Pebbles T, Karen O, Kimberly F, and Kristen D and Nikki Two. Thanks so much. We have
0: two new super supporters to give a tremendous shout out to Carly and Rihanna J as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, to you dear hearts for (laughs) coming back. For this season fourteen episode, if we're gonna find our place in the world, what do we have to do, Stacy? Probably
1: ought to go, go, go.
0: So, Stacy, in the first stop of our international tour today, you were doing an often requested mm-hmm. trashy divorce out of Canada.
1: Oh, Canada.
0: Oh, Canada.
1: Yeah, so Alicia, today we are going to disconnect from the here and now, almost entirely, and take a few minutes to celebrate one of the most colorful women that Canada has ever gifted the world with. I'm talking about Margaret Trudeau, Maggie, to her friends. Oh, Maggie. One-time wife of former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and the mother of current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. She is so far the only person in Canadian history to be the wife of one PM and the mother of another, but that role isn't really why Margaret has been such a source of fascination there and around the world. The unconventional nature of her time as First Lady of Canada during the heady, drug-fueled days of the 1970s put her in the orbit of some of the world's most notable people, some of whom she had barely hidden affairs with, and made her a tabloid staple for years. This sounds like a story for trashy divorces. It's yes. In the twenty-first century, she's had a fascinating second act, maybe third act, I'm not even sure. Having lived long enough for society and medicine to finally give her both a diagnosis, bipolar disorder, and effective tools to manage her mental health. Which is fantastic. It is. Today she's an outspoken advocate and activist for destigmatizing mental health challenges. So let's talk about the pride of Canada. Margaret Trudeau. Oh, Maggie. Margaret Jones Sinclair was born September 10th, 1948, in Vancouver, one of the world's great cities, and it's not entirely unexpected that her life would include politics. Her father, Jimmy Sinclair, was a member of parliament himself, as well as the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, which sounds a whole lot like the secret identity of Aquaman to me, but. It does. I guess you do need a Secretary of Fisheries and Oceans, I mean, like yeah, like what's your portfolio? They had a sprawling family. Margaret was one of five daughters. It was very tight knit grandparents were very active like it was it like it sounds like it was a great upbringing. There was one grandmother in particular that Margaret was especially close to and and it was this grandmother whom she was visiting when the phone unexpectedly rang at her parents' house one day in nineteen sixty nine but I am getting ahead of the story. For Christmas in 1967, the Sinclair family, including 19-year-old Margaret, who has described herself as a highly sexualized teenager, decided to get out of the cold for the holiday and go to a little place called Tahiti. She was dating a French water skiing champ at the time. Like you like do, you do. Come like on, a Sorbonne graduate. I mean, like, I mean, Tahiti's short- a nice place to spend the winter yeah. if you live in Canada. Yeah. So it was not particularly noteworthy to her when an older gentleman came off the water from his own water skiing run and and joined her, chatting her up the way one would. She didn't recognize him, although he was at the time Canada's justice minister. I really feel like the superhero pantheon is large in Canada. I didn't know. He would soon become Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, a Liberal Party politician like her father. Joseph Philippe Pierre-Yves Elliot Trudeau.
0: That's a lot that of names. That is a
1: lot of name. Can you imagine how tough kindergarten was? <laughs> was born October 18th, 1919. Lieberman. In Montreal, the son of a lawyer turned businessman. His dad was a major shareholder in the Royals baseball team and actually died of pneumonia while Oh no! he was a baseball fanatic. Anyway, his father would die when Pierre was just 16, but Charles Trudeau's success meant that his three children each inherited $5,000, which rendered them financially secure when this bequest was made in 1935. Wow. Yeah, they were doing all right. Pierre was academically very focused, he was fluently bilingual, and after graduating college at the age of 21, he took the advice of some mentors and went to law school, intent on maybe getting into politics. After law school, he added to Harvard at what would become later the John F. Kennedy School of Government, you know, again, going to focus on world affairs. He'd been fairly isolated, I think, in Canada, so... Didn't really fit in there. So he just sort of started traveling throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, He put 1,700 miles on his Harley Davidson. Wow. Doing all this at one point, he was mistakenly arrested when locals in the Middle East thought he was an Israeli spy. Whoops. I mean, life of adventure. An international education. Yes. So this really broadened his perspective and as travel does. So he returned to Ottawa in 1949 went to work as an economic policy advisor. He would later teach at the University of Montreal. In 1965, seasoned and successful, Trudeau was elected to Parliament in a Montreal-area seat that he would hold until he retired from politics in 1984. Wow. In April of 1967, he was pulled into the cabinet as Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and decided to spend Christmas that year in Tahiti. Well, that's nice. I mean, I don't know if that decision was made in April, but... (laughs) So Pierre was really the full package, charming and charismatic, and only 29 years older than Margaret. He had been a lifelong bachelor to that point, although he had certainly enjoyed romancing a number of prominent women, including Barbara Streisand. Anyway, one day in 1969, Canada's prime minister from the since 1968, Pierre Trudeau, who was considered a happening kind of guy in the Canadian press with nicknames like Swingin' Pierre and Trendy Trudeau. No. Yes. Although he was like 50 at the time. <laughs> Holy cats. Uh, so, yeah, Pierre calls Margaret's home and asked if the young woman he had snorkeled with in Tahiti a couple years back might be available for dinner. Their romance was strictly private. They dated for two years. The press believed that he was still hot and heavy with Barbara Streisand, and in fact, there was a rumor that he had proposed marriage to her. This was apparently fake news. So it was really quite a shock when Canadians woke up one morning in March of 1971 to the headline that the leader of their government had quietly married a 22 year old that no one knew he was dating. Secret wedding? Secret wedding. His own- his history taught us nothing about secret wedding. His own staff was told that he was on a ski vacation, and the ceremony was attended by just 13 people. Wow. Some were stunned by the age difference, but Margaret's family was totally thrilled. I think she had already been a bit of a wild child. Plus, you know, they were political allies in the same political party. This is a coup, the marrying sure. of dynasties. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Um <laughs> Sure. A lot of Pierre's friends were like, finally settling down. Good for you, man. Like, they would have three children. Justin Trudeau was born 10 months later on Christmas Day. Oh, he's a Christmas Day he's baby. He's a Christmas Day baby. I did not know that. Yeah. There's a great Vanity Fair profile of Margaret by Michael Callahan from 2017, where he charmingly describes Margaret as the, quote, Holly Golightly of the Mounties. <laughs> oh, that's delightful. And says this about the dynamics in the marriage. But this young Margaret Trudeau, like Grace Kelly had before her, found herself unprepared for ceremonial duties and blindsided by intrusive press stories about everything from her pregnancies to her wardrobe. The media frenzy reached its peak when she attended a reception at the White House in 1977 and was practically burned in effigy for wearing a knee-length cocktail dress. <sighs> And say it
0: isn't so. And
1: worse, for having a run in her stocking. The next day she dreaded the reciprocal reception the Trudeau's were obliged to host for Jimmy and Rosalind Carter at the Canadian Embassy in Washington. Quote, But the feminists had been outraged for the way I had been treated, she says. The phone rang all day long. Elizabeth Taylor called, saying, I'm wearing short. And Mrs. Carter saying, I'm wearing short. So we all wore short and we all laughed. We
0: all wore short.
1: Yeah, we did. Because it's what,
0: 1977, I can show my knees at night. Yeah. (laughs) Good Lord. Well, and she's in her 20s. Right. I'm going to show my knees. My knees aren't going to look any better than they do
1: today. (laughs) Uh, There are other anecdotes I will share, but it's important to note that after the birth of her second child in 1973... She experienced a very bad bout of postpartum depression, which at the time, everybody just called the baby blues. Yeah, nobody talks about that enough. new moms were just supposed to get the fuck over it. So whatever. Like, wow, we've really come a long way. Yeah, Um, I've never been a new mom, but I can imagine that is a really tough thing to be. Well, and she says that Pierre, who was wonderful in so many ways, was not great when she was experiencing depression he Uh, again he's in his 50s and successful and like she's in her mid-20s scholarly yeah yeah, and she's crying and like it just anyway he he criticized her during what would become cycles of depression and then increasingly there would be periods of mania punctuating those periods of it just free margaret Yes. This is from Harper's Bazaar in a 2016 profile of Margaret by Alex Kuzinski. Things, at least initially, were good, but the strain of raising a family and balancing the demands of political life began to creep in. Pierre, Margaret says, had expectations of her that she felt she could never live up to. Quote, I was fresh out of university. I was a flower child. I was very free-thinking for my time. I had been raised to be very liberated. My mom only had daughters, and she wanted each of us to be independent.
0: There's your Wonder Woman in Canada.
1: Uh. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I loved Pierre deeply. We had a wonderful time when the time was hours and hours alone. But once he married me and got me home and I was having his children, I realized that I had been put in a birdcage. Margaret turned to alcohol and pot. Pot and stewed in her resentment. Quote, My husband had all the virtues that a good husband was supposed to have, but he was also dictatorial and old-fashioned. I was always saying, What about me? We're in a partnership, aren't we? I devoted a lot of energy to blaming Pierre. She lowers her voice conspiratorially. Quote, I called 24 Sussex, the address of the PM's residence. I called 24 Sussex the crown jewel of the federal penitentiary system. Oh, my. There was a state dinner in Venezuela on a tour of the region in 1976, and Margaret apparently decided that she could take the edge off as this was approaching by pre-gaming with peyote, which resulted in a bit of a spectacle when Margaret, forgoing The planned toast to the Venezuelan first lady instead regaled her with an impromptu song she made up on the spot. I think peyote is more of an (laughs) after-party
0: sort of thing, not a pre-game sort of thing. Yeah,
1: may have misunderstood what state dinner meant. I I did not understand that assignment. Altered state dinner. Okay. Wow! This is from a 1976... New York Times piece immediately after the Trudeau's trip south. Bless her heart. Mrs. Trudeau, who returned with her husband from the trip last night, turned on the radio this morning and heard herself being criticized for proposing an unscheduled toast at a Canadian reception for the president of Mexico and his wife and for singing a song she had composed at a banquet in honor of the president of Venezuela and his wife. It's my favorite song. Okay, but Margaret Trudeau calls into this radio show.
0: Oh, no. Right. so No, here, no. Here is a quote. <sighs> Nobody.
1: <laughs> I was behaving as me, Mrs. Trudeau replied in a broadcast telephone conversation with Mike O'Connell, host of the show on station CKOY in Ottawa. Mrs. Trudeau, who is 27 years old and Mr. Trudeau, who is 29 years her senior, were married in 1971. They have three children. In a television interview in October 1974, Mrs. Trudeau had said that the frightening strains of being the young wife of a prime minister had contributed to a hospitalization for psychiatric treatment. <sighs> Again, so 1976, this is all out in the open. She's been struggling now. Now yeah, we're battling. For we're a long time. Definitely. This was happening as early as 1974, and she was not getting the help that she needed for a whole bunch of reasons, some having to do with just where medicine was, but also she's a woman in her, she's a very beautiful woman in her 20s. There are some public antics that perhaps would color the way a stodgy old physician might. Anyway, a lot going on. She took off to Paris at one point and then onto Crete, partying with socialites and celebrities. Sometime in the early 70s, she attended a celebrity tennis tournament in New York, which turned into some kind of liaison with Senator Ted Kennedy. Oh, really? Oh, he always denied it, but
0: we know okay. what happened.
1: Yeah. Which in turn turned into a long-running fantasy of escaping her increasingly unhappy marriage to Pierre by running away with Ted Kennedy. She says this, that like fantasy that she was semi-obsessed with of running away with Ted Kennedy, Not her only affair, but still this one was cataclysmic is the word she used to her marriage. Makes sense. I mean, she's like working out an exit plan in her head with a Kennedy, which is the worst idea. (laughs) I do not know if Pierre spent the night of his sixth wedding anniversary alone but I do know that he did not spend it with Margaret. Where was she? That's because Margaret spent the night of her sixth anniversary in Toronto at a Rolling Stones club show. like, Fantastic. Like, small show where she was fashionable as ever and seen by all and photographed a lot. Wow. Apparently the band then headed back to Margaret's hotel room to party all night, where we learned years later... Uh, she and Ron Wood hooked up interesting. there were rumors i mean it, it was a this was a scandal. This would kick off what has been described as a two year long lost weekend for Margaret, who closed out the seventies as an it girl and a denizen of studio fifty four Another anecdote from the Callahan piece in vanity fair one of my this is one of my we're coming up to one of my favorite sentences ever written, oh, goody. <laughs> So it starts with a quote: Quote, she had never really experienced New York, never mind the most bohemian fastest crowd in New York, adds Vanity Fair contributing editor Bob Colicello, who first met Margaret when she emerged nude from a hot tub in a Tokyo hotel room and offered him and Andy Warhol a joint. I mean, if you mad that. <laughs> That's a mad-lib sentence. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> So this is more from Kaczynski's piece in Harper's. Margaret barreled through the late 1970s on a path intended for self-discovery. To an outsider, it looked more like self-destruction. She dated Ryan O'Neill and Jack Nicholson. Wow. Spent days at Warhol's factory and frequently chaperoned Truman Capote home to bed. I mean, Truman Capote at this point is in the throes of a drug
0: and alcohol addiction.
1: He's already burned to swans. That's really nice Uh, of her to get him home. She definitely would have been a swan if she had been born in the right. Right. Uh, On the same night in 1979, this is still from the Kaczynski piece. On the same night in 1979 that her husband's party was crushed in the Canadian election, Margaret, by then publicly separated from Pierre, was photographed dancing ecstatically at Studio 54. The unflattering images appeared in newspapers across Canada. Going back for... Just because we love the trashy bits. She says this about Jack Nicholson. This affair, I think she wanted it to become more than it did, and, and it, in real time, left her feeling pretty bad. Anyway, of Jack Nicholson, quote, To me, he's the example of what a free human being is. He didn't tell any lies. He didn't make any promises. He didn't pretend. He simply was free. He wasn't going to commit to anyone. He never did. And... On Ryan O'Neill No Goody, who we have covered before, I believe, she says their dalliance was quote one of the shortest lived, most exciting and absurd unquote affairs that she ever had, and that he was shallow, her word, and quote everything that was wrong about the way I lived. They had met at Studio 54, and when the affair inevitably imploded, she took her revenge by throwing food at a Sunset Boulevard billboard for his whatever his latest movie was at the time. She, like, stopped off, got some food, drove to the (laughs) billboard. Terrific. Flagon. In 1979, oh, it's been a tough decade for young Margaret, she sat for an interview with Playgirl magazine, which is kind of the end of the party moment for her. Callahan says that she was, quote, largely incoherent. And in this interview, she revealed that she had had an abortion at the age of 17. She had once spent eight hours sitting in a tree while high on mescaline. You don't get out
0: of the tree when you're high on mescaline. You sit
1: for eight hours. What else is there? Seems like a smart idea. She said that she was now in love with Lou Rawls, whom she had (laughs) just met when they appeared on the same talk show together. Perfect. And she said that, quote, he just wants to take good care of me. Oh, and I am so much in love with that idea. Don't you think we could have a beautiful chocolate colored daughter together? Nope. Whew. You know what? That is not even the worst of what happened in this interview. Oh, no. Mid-interview, the phone rings. So the Playgirl piece included a transcription of her side of this phone call with Pierre, where she goes into detail about the outfit she was wearing in those devastating pictures from Studio 54 on the night of his electoral defeat. Just bad. At this point, all these years of what the media had described as, quote, uh, Margaret incidents... Is that how they're
0: referred to? That's how they're referred to, yeah.
1: Um, They had just stacked up too high, and she had become a public punchline and certainly was no help to Canada's political standing. She retreated from the public eye considerably, but it doesn't seem like she was fully settled down internally yet. Uh, For instance, she remarried 16 days after the 1984 (sighs) divorce from Pierre was finalized. Although that marriage would last for 15 years or so, produce two more children. I, I feel like in this period, she did get settled down, but presumably when Pierre filed a no-fault divorce petition in 1983, it probably was because she had met someone that she wanted. Like, I don't know. Well, there were problems as of the late 70s. That is a uh, long time they, for a divorce to actually happen. Yeah, they had been separated, yeah, yeah. since 1977. So notably... You're probably wondering, like, wait, so she has three kids from the first marriage. There are two kids from the second marriage. Like, she clearly is living an extremely chaotic life. Um, So what's up with, like, do they they hate their mother? And no, no, they all have a great relationship with their mother and have, like, incredibly fond memories of being a free-spirited, free-thinking, you know, like, fiercely independent mother. That is just a stroke of luck. However, jump ahead to 1998. Tragedy struck when her youngest son from her first marriage, Michelle, was killed in an avalanche while on a ski trip with friends. Oh, This triggered a deep depression, which was exacerbated two years later when Pierre himself, who had remained a warm friend of his children's mother, died as well. Like if, oh, that's just yeah. tough. Margaret was at his bedside, at his passing, and after that, she told Callahan, quote, I just went into madness. It's very, very frightening to be in that place. It took her years and two more hospital stays, including one where she was straitjacketed, to find her footing again. During one of these stays, another patient pointed to her and said to a third patient, You see that lady over there, the one in the corner crying? She thinks she's Margaret Trudeau. <laughs>
0: oh...
1: <laughs> she is Margaret Trudeau. She, in fact, is Margaret Trudeau. In 2006, she went public about living with bipolar and has since written extensively about it. She's the author of four books in total. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. As well as speaking engagements and other advocacy work. She's just kind of living her best life now. She's in her 70s, just doing the stuff she wants to do. And of course, she is the mother of Canada's current prime minister, Justin Trudeau. And since we are living in a bad place, that means we get a fun conspiracy theory. It actually dates back to 2016. Oh, no. When a Reddit user was apparently just asking questions about how much (laughs) Justin Trudeau, who had been elected PM in 2015, looked like then-recently-deceased Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, and incorrectly alleged that Margaret had met Castro in 1971. They did not, in fact, meet until that 1976 trip where she sang to the Venezuelan First Lady. Castro
0: has always been a fan of good music.
1: Yes, I'm sure. And uh, Justin, of course, was several years old then. So unless the super secret Cuban time machine project worked out. Justice League, yo. I don't know. (laughs) So this came up during the recent trucker convoy protests in Canada and Ottawa. Um, This got picked up once again by various people on the American right, who I tend to regard as anywhere from bad-faith actors to super gullible people. So for a while there, certain corners of Twitter feature just various side-by-side photos of, quote, the dictator Justin Trudeau, as they were calling him, and his alleged dad, Fidel Castro. And I'm just going to say, you know what? It is possible for two people who aren't related to kind of resemble each other. That's the thing. It happens. There's only so many configurations of all this. Have you met a person and their dog? So that, Alicia, is Margaret Trudeau, Pride of Canada, wife of one prime minister, mother to another, and probably not one of Fidel Castro's exes. I'm going to give this one 29 trash cans for the age difference between her and Pierre but also several decades worth of halos for living through a time where conditions like bipolar were poorly understood and there were not great treatment options available anyway. Gotta to get to the future. And she did it. You know, she sounds like she found her place in
0: the world. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a lot of similarities between my story and yours. Really? That was very well done. Well, I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Let's take a break. Pay some bills hear from our sponsors this week and we'll see on the flip with a similar story 200 years
1: before Uh, back in a second
0: If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial
1: organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything. Just Just go, 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 go to OaktreeGroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at
0: 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out.
1: Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700, and the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go. All right, Alicia, next up, as we whip out our passports to travel the world. I'm taking you back to 18th century Georgian
0: Hanoverian England Times. This story, it's not exactly a divorce, though, but it's super trashy. It's a terrible marriage, and it it definitely qualifies as trashy. At least in the 18th century. Sure. Today, we are going to talk about the extraordinary life of Georgiana Spencer Cavendish, the Duchess of Devonshire. Okay. Now, Devonshire, it's a big deal. There's a dukedom that comes with Devonshire. When you hear Cavendish Banana. (laughs) Not yet. When you hear the name Cavendish, you are looking at the dukedom of Devonshire. It is a peerage title in England. The Cavendish family has been doing their thing since the 16th century. Their thing sometimes being botany. Well, yeah, that's not until the 19th century. I know you're really into the Cavendish bananas, but we're not there yet. Back in the 16th century, it is Sir William Cavendish, who's not a duke yet, Who is the husband of Bess of Hardwick. Oh, wow. Who we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Who, her husband, back in the day for Henry VIII, oversees the dissolution of the monasteries. That's how he gets in good. Marries Bess of Hardwick. Bess of Hardwick is the second richest woman in England next to Elizabeth I. Because she owned all that property from... A number of marriages, correct? Correct. Bess Mm -hmm. of Hardwick, we've talked about her. She had four marriages. She's the builder. Uh, What a woman. She'll build Hardwick Hall with all the windows, Chatsworth. William, her husband, was the love of her life. Her other marriage is not so good, but she will marry all of her children and stepchildren well. When Bess of Hardwick dies, her wealth goes to her sons by William Cavendish... And her legacy, monetarily, after her death, is what allows her eldest son, William, to purchase an earldom from the new king, James I, in 1605, everyone's favorite witch hunter.
1: Uh, Ah, yes, yes.
0: Right? Only the beginning of the rise of the Cavendish family. Now, there have been quite a few notorious Duchesses of Devonshire in time... But today we're talking about Georgiana. No one is quite like Georgiana. One marriage. And a polyamorous one in that? But that isn't even the trashy part. For every player involved in this story, there are so many affairs, so many scandals. This was 18th century high drama. Also something interesting to know. Georgiana is Princess Diana's fourth great aunt. I had a feeling that Spencer in her name was going to... Coming back around. Mm -hmm. Albeit these two are centuries between each other, both Georgiana and Diana marry a man a decade older than them, and both were very much the focus of the press attention in their lifetimes. Georgiana is our story today. Super famous in the late 18th century for her charm and beauty and fashion and political influence. She was also known for her debts. And not only is Georgiana, the four-time great-aunt of Diana, Princess of Wales, Georgiana is an ancestor of Sarah Ferguson, Hmm. Duchess of York, through her illegitimate daughter. So many repetitions, so many spiderwebs, so many years apart. Let's get into it. Georgiana Spencer was born on June the 7th, 1757 at Althorp House in West Northamptonshire, where she grows up. This is the same house that Diana, Princess of Wales, grows up in. Hmm. The Spencer family seat is Althorpe. It is a 13,000 acre estate in Northampton. It has belonged to the Spencer family since 1508, when the first Spencers bought the land after they amassed a tremendous amount of wealth as sheep farmers. Not bad. <laughs> Georgiana's parents were John Spencer, first Earl of Spencer, and Margaret Georgiana Points. Georgiana's birth happens a year and a half after her parents are married. And the thing I want you to remember is her parents really are a love match. They get hitched in a secret wedding at Christmas of 1755 on John's 21st birthday. He's 21. He will marry the 18 year old Margaret. From the Points family, another powerful family. And they don't tell anyone. They have this secret marriage and don't say a word all the way up through to Twelfth Night. Hmm. But alas, once the big secret marriage is revealed, parties and celebrations are had. Their town will celebrate with 5,000 guests invited to the Village Green, where 11,000 pints of beer were served. Also not bad. I want to stress that Georgiana's parents really like each other. Okay. They're a team. And the Spencer family is wealthy and aristocratic and influential. Again, they go back to the 15th century. They have Althorp, But by the 18th century, the Spencers are prominent among the Whig Party. The Whig Party opposes the Tories for power at the time. The Spencers, when it comes to financial security have roughly 500 British pounds per week coming into the family, which roughly translates to $85,000 a week in today's money. Need me to say it again? Not bad. (laughs) They happily entertain at their home at St. James's in London. So Georgiana is the oldest of three kids. She has a sister, Henrietta, and a brother, George. And Georgiana is beautiful and charming and clever. And even her mother will admit... That she loves Georgina the best of her children. She refers to her as dear little G. Some moms have favorites. You're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah. Georgina's mom talks about it. Okay. And although Georgina's childhood was ideal in many ways, she will suffer some serious emotional trauma that will impact her throughout her life. We're looking at a story very much of a Mago. John Spencer, her father, suffers from manic depression. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation, Georgiana's mother, Margaret, is a religious fanatic. So put those sandwiched together in the 18th century. Her grandparents are alcoholics. All die of alcoholism. But Georgiana, little G, dearly loved and given all the advantages of an aristocratic upbringing, But a lot of difficulties to deal with in a time where nobody talks about anything unpleasant. During one of her father's most severe bouts of depression, Georgina's mother decides it would be best for all the kids, all three kids, to be left with their grandmother while mom and dad go abroad to help dad recover. But they don't tell Georgina why they're doing this. So it becomes very internalized with her that this is punishment. I've done something wrong and my parents have left me. This move will have a profound impact on her life because now she becomes a people pleaser. She never wants to displease anyone. She becomes very obedient. Because of this, Georgiana can be very easily manipulated. And again, Hanoverian Georgian period, there are strict rules that dictate court conventions of behavior and Georgiana knows them for my Bridgerton people. Georgiana is a diamond years before she's the diamond of the season because by 14 Georgiana is so charming and lovely that people are already talking about who she's going to marry. Hmm. She's 14. But that was nearly marriage age at the time, right? Georgiana's mother's like, no, I'm not letting her get married until she's 18. She's not ready for marriage yet. The family will be on a grand tour, goodness, during this time. And Georgiana is praised for all of her virtues. Also, Georgiana is going to go to Versailles and become besties with Marie Antoinette Jones. We're going to leave Georgiana and her bestie, Marie Antoinette, just hanging out at Versailles mm-hmm. right now. A little 16-year-old action Having a wonderful time to meet our groom, William Cavendish, who is the fifth Duke of Devonshire. He's born December 14th, 1748, and when Georgiana meets him, William Cavendish is one of the wealthiest and most prominent men in England. He has come into his fortune when he was 16. His fortune is double that of Lord Spencer's.
1: Wow. There's also a Devonshire clotted cream. I'm having all kinds. Every time you say Cavendish, I'm like banana. And every time you say Devonshire, I'm like clotted cream. Okay. Not only a lot of money mm-hmm. that William Cavendish
0: has, but property too, including Chatsworth in Derbyshire and Devonshire house in London, being two very good examples of his real estate portfolio. William is considered England's most eligible bachelor, and he is the anointed prince of the Whig party and honestly, nobody gets why. I mean, they do get it because he has a shit ton of cash. Right. But nobody understands the personal appeal because, to be fair, there's not much personal appeal. William, on the surface, is much like every other aristocrat the Brits, stiff upper lip types. But Georgiana knows her father, who does all that stuff for society. But Georgiana knows her father inside the home to be a very tender and loving man, supportive of his wife and supportive of his kids. And Georgiana, people pleaser, certainly thinks marriage must all be like this. When Georgiana is 16 and the Duke is 25, he will inquire about marrying her. There's no better marriage prospect for Georgiana. But her mom again is torn because my kid's too young to get married. And mom really is struggling here. I don't want
1: to deny you the opportunity to marry the most eligible bachelor in England. I did learn from Bridgerton season one that marrying a Duke is pretty much as good as it gets. It's
0: as good as it gets. Like, I don't want to deny you this high status marriage. But you're 16. But you're 16 and you're not ready for this. And Georgiana, right... A decade younger, they meet. They only meet a few times before they actually get married. Mm -hmm. But her parents are so deferential to the Duke. And they're awfully excited about him being interested in their child. And as marriages go, tying these Spencers and the Cavendishes would be a coup. And remember, Georgiana is always wanting to please So my assumption here through the courting phase, if you can call it that, she is so young, but Georgina is so much in love with the idea of marrying him. It's not about him per se.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not like she was allowed to dream of like, oh, I'm going to grow up and go to law school. Like, right. So all she's dreamed about is a great marriage. Well, that's it. And here is the best prospect possible.
0: With marriage being the means to success and security for women in the 18th century, Mm -hmm. Georgiana's parents will happily accept the Duke's offer of marriage. They want her to wait, though, until she's a little older. But this news, when it gets released, is so hot in the press. There has not been a Duchess of Devonshire for about two decades, and Georgiana is so charming and her husband is such a dolt, right, that, or her future husband is such a dolt, that the press, as well as England and all the Whigs, think certainly Georgina can make the Duke of Devonshire a little bit more appealing. Yeah, she can fix him. That's exactly right. The wedding does happen on June the 7th, 1774. This is two days earlier than planned and on her birthday because there's so much press that the family thinks that the church will be overcome with looky-loos hmm. trying to get in on the wedding. So nobody tells Georgiana, but mom and dad invite the Duke down for that day. Like, hey, we're just going to go ahead and have a secret wedding today. Right. <laughs> right. Get this handled. Only five people are there. The Duke's brother, Lord Richard Cavendish, and his sister Dorothy, who had married the Duke of Portland, Georgiana has her parents and her paternal grandmother, Lady Cowper. Even her siblings are waiting at home at Wimbledon. They're home, waiting for the five people in the wedding party and the couple to return. But see, the Duke has something else going on, though, because right before his marriage to Georgiana, his mistress, Charlotte Spencer, no relation to those Spencers, has just delivered his illegitimate child. Hmm. So this is going great. And again, this is a marriage most wonderful. On the surface, the coming together of the Spencer and Cavendish families. It's an enormous deal. But these two could not be more different. He is quiet. She is not. He is an introvert. She is an extrovert. They are opposites. And Georgiana's mother was right. Georgiana is in no way at 17 years old equipped to run an estate like Chatsworth. She's given controlling lady privileges of Chatsworth yeah. and all of its employees. Yeah, go manage the staff now. And she's unprepared. The servants totally begin taking advantage of her youth and inexperience. So theft is on the rise. The quality of service and food... On the descent. Mm -hmm. And it quickly becomes obvious to Georgiana that her marriage is not going to be the fairy tale that her parents had sold her that it was going to be. It's not too hard to see the Duke does not love her and that their personalities are mismatched. He ignores her. He's very dull. He also is in the process of spending his money on developing a new town called Buxton. And Georgiana is... A teenager, and she likes dresses and having fun because she is a child. Mm -hmm. But here she is, the mistress of a grand estate, and she's expected to make friends with other society wives, as well as to promote her husband socially and politically. Also, he's constantly cheating. (laughs) Georgina is having repeat miscarriages. It's all terrible. Three months into the marriage, Georgina gets a little suspicion about the true nature of her husband's feelings towards her, him being distant, and she gets it. We don't have anything in common. My innocence bores him, and she gets his lack of interest. She tells her mother that she was secretly making an effort to be more attractive to him. He's so much more worldly than I am. So she begins reading history and the classics, also, that illegitimate child he had, she's expected to raise oh God. at Chatsworth.
1: It's not a love match, is what I'm trying to say. I feel like that would be an awkward conversation, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe he was just like, also, this one's mine. The Duke needs her. Here's what it comes down to. The Duke cannot come into
0: his enormous fortune until he has a male heir. Oh. And he needs Georgiana to have a male heir. Mm. This is the struggle of their marriage. It will take her 16 years to deliver an heir. Needless to say, Georgina is lonely, insecure, bored, and overwhelmed, and she's longing to fill the void in her life. She'll begin engaging with the public in a way that had never, ever, ever been done before. She's charming AF. She's wonderful with crowds of people and becomes extremely popular. And she does this a lot through fashion. Her favorite fashion statements are headdresses and wigs. She starts the hair tower Hmm. where you pile it up high. She once wears 16 feet tall ostrich feathers on her head to a society ball.
1: This is the girl who was hanging out with Marie Antoinette?
0: Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well, honestly, to get to that ball with the 16-foot-tall ostrich feathers, she had to sit on the floor of the carriage in order to get transported to that ball. Mm -hmm. But people are shocked by her choices, but she also becomes a fashion icon. She becomes a trendsetter. People are like, ooh, what'd Georgina do? We're going to do that, too. So her popularity and fame on the rise. In the same short time period that Georgiana had gotten married and entered society, newspapers and communication are really taking off. Georgiana's headline news. There is greater literacy among the general public, and the printing press now is allowed mass communication. So for the first time, there are five daily and six weekly newspapers that all need a headline. Hmm. Georgiana is the headline. She once wears a unique shade of brown and it becomes called Devonshire Brown and super popular. Georgiana will put gray powder in her hair, which becomes the rage for sure. every woman to
1: powder their hair right. gray. Early gray. Called Devonshire gray. What woman does not dream of gray hair?
0: That's exactly right. So during this time, English society was a pretty tight circle. There are about 10 million people in the country of England at the time, but only about 1,500 of those in the top echelons of society. This is what we would call the ton from Bridgerton. It's this group of people, the ton. Everybody knows each other's business. Gossip is pervasive. And the set that William and Georgiana are most closely associated with are called the Devonshire House Circle. They're prominent within the Whig Party. They're fervently anti-slavery, fervently pro-American. Georgiana is extremely popular with the Devonshire House Circle, but none of them are her real true friends. She's a people pleaser. She's going to try to continue to please them through her charm, clever antics, grace, all that stuff, but... There's not a real connection. The Duke, who has been having affairs throughout their marriage, will now have an affair with Lady Jersey that becomes widely known that he will also flaunt in the face of his wife. Georgiana is humiliated and feels an even greater need to fill the void that her unhappy marriage had left in her life. The first plan for filling that void Georgiana escapes her unhappiness through gambling. She becomes addicted to gambling and will rack up tremendous debts. Her debts are in the millions and millions in today's money. Maybe worse, Georgiana hides the debts from the Duke. Well, it seems like they have such an open and free share. And the Duke is getting chased and harassed by her creditors. Uh. Uh-huh. So when the Duke confronts her, she'll admit to small amounts of debt, but she legit hides about 90% of the debt that she's accumulating. Sadly, Georgiana also becomes bulimic during this time. So she's got anxiety about her life, her marriage debts being childless. Add to that, she'll start abusing laudanum and other available drugs. Hmm. So for... The marriage that started so promising, by the age of 20, Georgiana has a major gambling addiction, <laughs> crippling debt, suffering from bulimia, drinks heavily, and is dependent on opioids. Cool. Now, here's the cruel irony, right? The Duke is unable to pay off her debts until she bears him an heir. Oh, God. Because of the way his father's will is written, William doesn't come into the bulk of his inheritance until a son is born. 16 years it's going to take for that to happen. But Georgiana, she gets some ideas. She decides if the intimacy that she longs for with her husband is not there, she could find it in different ways. It is completely unacceptable for an aristocratic woman to have any affair with any other man until that aristocratic woman has secured a male heir for the husband's family. But hey, Georgiana comes up with a solution. Easy peasy. You want to guess? I think I know. Go ahead. You betcha. Affairs with women. Hey. Not a problem. I got this. The first of these Georgiana has is an affair with Mary Graham. They meet in 1777, and there are some very tender letters that Georgiana writes to Mary. Quote, you must know how tenderly I love you. I am falling asleep and must leave you now, but I want to say to you, Above all, that I love you, my dear friend, and kiss you tenderly. This something of a liaison will go on for a while, but it is in 1782 that the most notable of these lady crushes happens and will provide a far different course for Georgiana than what she thought likely, I am certain. Enter Lady Elizabeth Foster, also known as Bess.
1: And there's a banana's foster, so... <laughs>
0: Oh, my. Bess is the daughter of the fourth Earl of Bristol. She's born May 13th, 1758. And Bess has been married. She has two sons. But her husband is fooling around, like, at the five-year mark. 1781, Bess is like, hubby John Thomas Foster, I'm done with you. But by divorcing him, it's going to leave her penniless. Bess will not see her sons for 14 years Yikes. because of this, because mm-hmm. John Thomas Foster will keep them. But Bess is going to console herself and go to Bath in 1782 for a little time to recharge after the terrible separation, losing her children and pending divorce. And it is here in Bath in 1782 that Georgiana and Bess become best friends. And Georgiana's like, Bess, honey, you're my best friend and lover. You should come live with us. You cannot face this terrible world alone. And Bess will gratefully accept Georgina's offer to come and live with Georgina
1: and her husband. This seems awkward. Well, or, really- or not. I don't I don't know.
0: Well the relationship between the three of them ends up turning into something rather polyamorous Bess becomes the duke's mistress for 25 years wow. During that time Bess and the duke will have two illegitimate children <sighs> However Georgiana's own feelings for Bess will continue letters to her show the affection despite the fact that she is very aware that Bess is having an affair with her husband. Quote, My dear Bess, do you hear the voice of my heart crying to you? Do you feel what it is for me to be separated from you? Oh, Bess, every sensation I feel but heightens my adoration of you. Georgina is devastated when she learns that Bess is having an affair with her husband. But these three become involved in... A very dysfunctional and toxic menage a trois. Triangle, yeah. Now, despite her unhappiness with her husband and the breakdown of the marriage, the duchess can't take a lover, but Bess can take lovers and her husband can take lovers, but not Georgiana. But oddly enough, it is during this like toxic menage a trois period where Georgiana finally becomes pregnant. Hmm. But Bess also becomes pregnant. Well... The first successful pregnancy results in the birth of Lady Georgiana Dorothy Cavendish. 1783, a girl. Another girl follows in 1785. But hey, the whole political thing is heating up and we're living in a threesome. And England, for the family, after the political elections in that year, decide to just GTFO. They're out. They're going to head to France which in 1785, I'm sure, is a delightful time to head to France because the revolution's mm-hmm. going to start in 1789. Yeah. But it is in France after long last. After 16 years of marriage in June of 1790, that Georgiana, the Duchess, gives birth to a male heir for the dukedom. This is William George Spencer Cavendish, who will take on the title of Marquis of Hardington at birth this is the honorary title that goes for the first son of the Duke. Huzzah! The Duke can finally get his money. Georgiana's debts can be paid. After, you know, the French Revolution, the family returns to England. And now, blessedly, with the arrival of a son, Georgiana is now able to take a lover. She's going to waste no time. In 1791, Georgiana begins her affair with Charles Gray. Later, Earl Gray, who was considered one of the, he's the romance of her life. Good tea. He's handsome. He's charming. He makes good tea. He's a Whig politician. Second Earl Gray, who will later go on to become the prime minister in Hmm. 1830. The affair begins. That same year, Georgiana discovers she is carrying the child of Charles Gray. Hmm. Oops. And Georgiana's in Bath. So she's like, hey, nobody needs to know. She hasn't seen her husband in a really long time. And Georgiana is six months pregnant before the rumors make it to her husband in London that she is pregnant. And the Duke does a little math, pretty mm-hmm. furious. And mm-hmm. he hears all the gossip and he's like, okay, I'm going to make a secret trip to Bath. Whoa, here's my wife, six months pregnant, not mine. It's all true. And the Duke will issue an ultimatum. You need to give up your lover and child or you lose me and everything you have. The Duke's mad. Georgiana doesn't want to give up Charles Gray or her child, but the Duke says if she doesn't, he'll never allow her to see her children again. He threatens divorce and permanent exile for her. Even if she gives up the child, I'm going to divorce you and you're exiled forever. You're an outcast. Now, in a strange twist of fate here, Bess, Foster, Mm -hmm. decides at this moment after, holy cats, a decade of this already, to show her loyalty to Georgina And tells the Duke that if he divorces Georgiana or sends her away permanently, (laughs) she's out too. She'll go with her and never come back to you. Hmm. Hmm. Georgiana will reflect on her decision in a letter to a friend writing, I have in leaving gray left my heart and soul. He has one consolation that I have given him up for my children only. Georgiana travels to France to deliver the child. She'll go with her sister and Bess Foster. The society in London, the Tun, thinks that Georgiana is summering in Switzerland and wintering in Nice because this is what the Duke has told everyone in London. But it is in France where Georgiana gives birth to a daughter on February 20th, 1792. Her name is Eliza. The child is immediately taken from Georgiana within minutes from birth and given to a foster family where the child is raised, until the child could travel, where she will snug up with her grandparents, the parents of Charles Gray in Northumberland. The agreement in place is that the child, Eliza, is to know nothing of her real mother. Although Georgina is allowed to be kind of an unofficial godmother, she can send her little presents, little drawings. They meet each other through time,
1: Georgina's kids know. This seems just uselessly complicated to me. The
0: only person who doesn't know in this entire situation that Georgina is Eliza's mother is, is Eliza. Kid, yeah. exactly. Eliza thinks that Charles Gray is just like her cool older brother. Hmm. She doesn't, like, unaware of her parentage. After the child's birth, though, Georgina is in exile. She will call this the most terrible time period of her life. She's in exile from the Duke's orders for about two years. The Duke will eventually allow her to return to the United Kingdom in the autumn of 1793. She'll arrive in England and settle down for a quiet life at Chatsworth House. When she gets back, she's nearing 40, and her role in English society and the national political climate have both drastically changed. She's returning a disgraced woman, The Whig Party are also disgraced and out of power. So a lot of people feel Georgiana will retire in the country, never come back to London, never come back to society. Mm -hmm. Just go
1: hang out there. Stare at your big uh, ostrich feathers and think of the old days. Be broken, Mm -hmm. hide out. Georgiana will contract a horrible eye
0: infection, which swells. And the doctors of the time believe, because medicine that, oh, the blood in your head is poisoned. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: that, God, that old it's ailment. Bad.
0: <laughs> they decide, the doctors do in all of their wisdom, to treat the poisoned blood in her head by tying a rope around her neck to suffocate out the bad blood.
1: There's, there's no downside to this. Well, the
0: downside is that Georgina survives oh, this God. medical treatment but it will cause the infection to spread to the other eye that wasn't afflicted due to the rope tying around the neck incident, as well as leeches and other mm-hmm. remedies and treatments of the day. Mm-hmm. Georgiana becomes disfigured, completely blind in one eye and halfway blind in another. She's 75% blind okay. at this time, but that doesn't stop Georgiana instead of feeling sorry for all that she has lost. She decides to work on herself and become the person that she would like to be. She stops drinking. She gets off drugs. She stops gambling. Here, she actually concentrates on raising her children. I love that she was drinking and taking drugs all through the pregnancies. 100%. (laughs) Not only is she raising her kids, she's also building up the Whig party again. Okay. And she begins studying mineralogy and chemistry. And is interested in scientific experimentation. Hmm. She becomes quite an accomplished mineralogist and establishes the Devonshire Mineral
1: Collection that is still housed at Chatsworth
0: today. I like rocks.
1: I like rocks. I shall go for a walk with twenty-five percent vision and find minerals.
0: So Georgina sort of starts a new phase in her life. Mm-hmm. During this time, she will re-emerge and even become popular and revered again within politics and London society. Georgiana is one of the three main people that are responsible for getting the Whig Party back in power and creating an allyship between the Whigs and the Tories to combat Napoleon Bonaparte. Hmm. Good to have
1: a common enemy. Right? Mm-hmm. In
0: 1806, the Whig Party makes a comeback with Georgiana as their official hostess she has as the duchess of devonshire redeemed herself and come back to be respected and revered but only weeks after this victory georgiana dies <laughs> it's not funny march the 30th 1806 at devonshire house <sighs> at the age of 48 it's the uh, what is thought to be a liver infection abscess of the liver All of her family, her kids, and Bess Foster are with her when she dies. They are all inconsolable over the loss of Georgina. Even the Duke, who never seemed to love her during their marriage, is a broken man. Hmm. Georgina's daughter, little G, writes a letter to her mother the day after she died that reads... Oh, my dearest departed mother, I wanted to throw violets on your bed, as you had thrown sweetness over my life, but they would not let me. Even the Prince of Wales will write, The best-natured and best-bred woman in England is gone. Long live the Duchess of Devonshire. It's going to take three years, but the Duke will go on to marry his second (laughs) Duchess. Bess Foster in eighteen oh nine. yep
1: <laughs> well I guess After they had a history about yeah. for
0: twenty five years. Bess Foster becomes the newest Duchess
1: of Devonshire. And is it Bess Foster who invents Devonshire clotted cream? You're a funny girl. I mean, your jokes today are not. <laughs>
0: Georgina Cavendish is still widely regarded as a trailblazer in women's rights, politics, fashion, activism. She is the subject of numerous famous paintings and books. There are still over a thousand letters of hers that remain at Chatsworth. And Georgina will succeed in finding her authentic self, her place in the world. She will pass away when her life is on a high note. She is deeply loved by her children, mourned by an entire country, and buried in the family vault at Derby. I don't know. I love this story. A girl looking for a place in the world. Like, aren't we all? As trash cans go, enough trash cans to fill Chatsworth. Hmm. That's my assessment. And that is the trashy
1: non-divorce of Georgiana
0: Spencer Cavendish duchess of devonshire
1: well i'm glad we pulled out our passports and our time machines today it was quite a ride that's quite a life quite a ride just the constraints it's uh stacy i think that wraps
0: up our international episode for the week okay we're going to be back on wednesday with a new episode of trashy breakups and don't forget monday brand new episode of done and done coming to you we're about to take a super delightful Passport ride over
1: there. Hmm. Trash Pandas, thanks so much for listening. It's really exciting to be back for season 14. You ain't kidding. No, I'm not. So much fun. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your ears and your support. If you
0: want more of us, you can find us over at patreon.com for almost daily episodes. Almost. And until we meet again, Mm -hmm. Trash Pandas. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. See you Wednesday, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production, created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia, by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a
1: little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at Carbonmade.com, and our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram